Welcome back to the Mulligan Brothers podcast. I am your host, Jordan Mulligan. Hope you're having a blessed and productive day. And thank you for joining me for motivation, inspiration, and hopefully some lessons and teachings that will help you lead a prosperous and productive life. Today, I'm joined with the legend in sports psychology, Bill Bessick, uh, who's coached champions and world champion teams all around the world and mainly in England and the UK. This was a really interesting conversation for me. So I was reading Bill's book and uh, I noticed that he'd uh, coached England basketball and my mentor of mine um, or my old coach, and I see him as a, a bit of a life mentor, who he was a massive life mentor for me, who shaped and chiseled my mindset for me, um, Curtis Xavier, uh, was coached by Bill but for the England team. Now, Curtis is one of those hard-nosed, get-it-done kind of guys. Like He's like David Goggins and Coach Carter mixed together, and it's like, you're running the drill, you know, like, and he would put me through these mental tests of uh, endurance and sprints. And like, I, you know, I wasn't the most talented at basketball at all, but I, I maintained that I was the bravest, that I was, I was fearless. I would do whatever it takes. I was the hardest worker. And he'd regularly test that because he knew, I, he knew I thought that about myself. So he'd constantly put me through that. And it, sometimes we would be, I remember we were doing this layup drill and uh, I was, it was, it was a hook shot, I think. And uh, it was a hook from the post and I drop step hook in the post and I, I hit the shot. It was nice. It'd go for 10 reps. And I, I st he stood over me watching me and, you know, these shots were perfect guys. I'm talking about perfect. And he looked at me afterwards, I, you know, go finish the drill and I look at him and he goes, no. And I was like, okay. And he was like, no, you got it wrong. And I go back, do it again. And I did it again. I looked at him and did one and goes, nope. I do it again. He said, nope. And I swear to you. So the hours, the practices were usually like two hours. This was coming to the, around to the end of the practice, but we went for a good 30 minutes after the session and a little group of my um, teammates gathered around. Uh, They're on the windows outside. They'd finished their session and they were just watching this and I was just dripping with sweat. Um, and he was trying to break me. He had the team one time line up for sprints and uh, and there was about 30 of us and he ran us for like two and a half hours to run sprints. And I was the, me and a guy, uh, one, one of the guy um, were left running these sprints and everyone else had bowed out because they were sick. They were like falling into pieces. And a lot of them, it was like their, their mental, the, the mental had gone. I wasn't faster than any of those guys. I wasn't fitter than any of those guys, but Every single time I finished a sprint, I jumped straight back up, jumped on the line, ready to go. And I and I made a point to that as I looked in Curtis's eyes, like I'm, I'm ready to go, what? And he, you know, trying to break me, but like, so anyway, my point was, is that Bill Bessick was one of the guys who created Curtis Xavier. So like, this was the guy who created my mentor's mentality. So like, I I had a lot to, to ask this man uh, and I was super excited coming into this, like to talk to him and like find out who he was and what kind of work he'd been doing. So we get to Bill's house and, and there he is, this, this small man, um, uh, very calm, composed, very softly spoken. And the, 
mindset and the the knowledge and just of a like the way in which he speaks is of a it's just like a a killer like and not in a sense like I don't mean killer like he's like going to take you out but like if you're on the court with him if you if you're one of his athletes it's like it's bulletproof it's not about aggression it's not about um bravado it's none of that it's about clear cut um almost like a callousness like this is what is happening it's not it's not a question this is how it's happening this is what it's got to be like it just it's just a brilliant man we spoke about curtis briefly i uh, got to speak and he remembered curtis which was lovely so all of that's in the episode uh, so i'm super super excited to share this one with you guys uh, today's episode was made possible as always at mulliganbrothers.com where you can now get the Momentum mori posters a life calendar that reminds you that you are mortal and it's got 80 years plotted out in tiny, tiny little squares and each square represents a week of your life. You shade it into how old you are. So mine's got 30 years shaded and every single week you shade in a new square. And I looked at that the other day and I was looking down and I looked at the box and I thought, there is a box on there that will not see my ink. I will not shade it in. There is a box that will be the last one that I filled in and it really, really lit a fire under my bum. And, uh, you know, we don't know if tomorrow is promised and we need to get a crack on. And, you know, are you going to be happy if you die tomorrow with what you've put in so far? And that's how I live my life every single day. If I die tomorrow, was I happy with yesterday? Uh, so it's been a very, very powerful tool. You can also get the Inspired Change hoodies and t-shirts and the journal as well at mulliganbrothers.com where all the profits go back into creating this content and making these videos and documentaries possible at Mulligan Brothers YouTube channel as well. Let's jump into this amazing podcast episode with Bill Bessick, the legend. For people who, who don't know, just introduce yourself and what you do. Well, my name is Bill Bessick. Um, I'm an applied sports psychologist, which means that I work with athletes, teams and coaches to improve their performance by helping them overcome mental and emotional barriers to performance. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to know what, what different sports have you worked in as well, like just give us a list. <laughs> I, know, I know you said a lot earlier, but... Many different sports, um, from equestrian to American football to basketball to netball to you name it. Because I've always believed that some of the performance issues that I deal with cross all sports and of course cross business and education as well because the human being when called upon to perform it's something that's challenging faces all the mental and emotional barriers that I was talking about before so I think my work applies across all aspects of performance. Lovely, I think we'll, we'll definitely touch on that as well a little okay. bit, bit later but um, early days for yourself, uh, we have a large American audience. How would you describe your childhood, the area that you grew up in? Well, very working class, um, Manchester man, youngest of a family of six, limited circumstances, um, but had two great breaks which changed my life. One was uh, I, I passed the 11 plus from my primary school to go to grammar school Grammar school brought me very much a middle-class sort of upbringing. And the second one was at f age of 14, I joined the Manchester YMCA, 
which introduced me to a lot of people who'd been educated, experienced, and I learned so much from them. So I, I had a limited home environment, but a very much better environment outside the home. And then, so early on, first sports, was you say basketball was one of your early things? Was that what you played with straight away, or did you, was you into other sports? Well, when I joined Manchester YMCA, they have 56 sports there over six floors, and I went as a 14 year old, small, thin, with a, a plastic bag with some kit in, and walked around all 56 sports, and nobody spoke to me. And I didn't know what to do, and I was in the gymnasium, and there was basketball practice. And the Polish coach of the team came over to me and said, do you want to join in? And those words have created my life. I, I, I can't think about how important those words are to me. And that's been my motto in life, to say that to other people as I've gone through life. Do you want to join in? And he kickstart, which was an amazing career. Oh, mate. So, did you start playing at a high level with basketball? Or? I was very limited as a player, I'm afraid. I, I, I dreamed about playing at a high level. I loved the sport. I still love the sport. But it became clear to me that my physique wasn't matched for the game. So, I made an early transition into coaching and found to my delight that I loved coaching. Manchester basketball, I don't know if I've got this right, John Amici, is that, is that yes, Manchester? Yes, John Amici became an American superstar or NBA and uh, college star, yes. I have an interesting story about John Amici. When I was playing basketball early on, I actually I sent him an email saying, really, I'm, I'm training to be in the NBA, can you offer any tips or help? And he sent me through this whole programme um, to go over over the summer and I did it every single day. And I think just like you said with that coach is like those inclusive, inclusive moments for people like to reach out and help somebody else. Um, what, what's your thoughts on children and young adults nowadays getting involved in a sport and maintaining that? I think it's so important. I think it's so important. Um, it, it's an activity which demands a level of commitment, a level of courage, um, focus, concentration, determination, resilience. And I think a lot of the present generation of young people have had life a little bit easy. They've been brought up in reasonably good circumstances by parents who really love them too much, done too much for them. And so they're not very resourceful as a generation. But you step into the world of sport and you've got to face up to some realities. And I think sport can help society by teaching children all those great qualities. What are those lessons that you learn when you, when you join in sport? And Well, the first thing is commitment. When you join a team, you're committed. And then the second thing is to get on with other people. You've got to move from me to we. You've got to stop being selfish and start being selfless. You've got to pass the ball to the person in the best position, or they will tell you you should pass the ball to the person in the best position. Uh, and then you've got to learn to have self-belief. And, and when you're playing in the arena, stepping up in the arena, you've got to take responsibility for your actions. You've got to have resilience when you get beaten or get dropped from the team. You've got to bounce back. So a lot of great human qualities which will help them throughout life are embedded in the learning of sport. 
For, you, for yourself as a, as a young athlete, was there any particular moments that you remember that taught you any lessons? Oh, I think there was, there was quite a few. Um, I think the, the lesson of self-belief was a big one. I, I, I have, each person has two selves, their real self and their performer self. And my real self is different from what you're hearing now. This is my performer self in action. My real self is quite shy, quite quiet, quite introverted. And that's what I first of all brought to the basketball court. And it didn't work. It, so I had to de develop a performer self. I had to inject myself with confidence and assertiveness to go out and dictate and lead a team. And that was a big lesson to me because when I became a teacher, which was my first job, I was able to walk into the classroom with my real self, Bill Bessick, quite quiet guy, but step up into my performer self and become Bill Bessick the teacher. Okay, children, this is what we're going to do today. So it was a great lesson to me that you can really be who you want to be. What was that moment of transition from playing to, to coaching? What was the biggest attraction about getting into the coaching side of things? Well, to be honest, it was determined by my fellow players. <laughs> they decided I'd be better as a coach than a player. So, I, okay. Um, but the transition for me was fairly easy. I, I think I've got a teacher-type personality. I love to share. I love to share knowledge, to share information, see people do better. So I'm very much a people person. So coaching fitted my natural instincts, my normal personality. And uh, of course, there was no where I could go for advice at that time in this country. There was no coaching profession. Uh, so information from America was very limited at the time. Um, so I had to really write my own script, but I loved it. I loved it, and the players responded really well. In fact, my first team, my very first team, still meets every year as a reunion, and that's, that's lovely. That's about the good things in human beings. Mm. What's the progression then from, so was it basketball initially with the coaching? Like, what was the progression for your career? Well, pro, uh, basketball, and then, uh, so my career was parallel. I had a career in, in education, so I went to college, as a, trained to be a PE teacher, uh, started teaching in Manchester, went from teaching to lecturing at college, um, and pursued a career in education as a, as a teacher and a professor and uh, finally a president of a, of a college. But I had this parallel career as, as a basketball coach who coached at club level, and then got lucky enough to be asked to coach England. Had five exhilarating years with England, traveling the world, playing international basketball, and then uh, finished because uh, my two sons demanded my, my time to th coach them. Uh, they were 10 and 12, uh, and then came back into sport unexpectedly. So this is something you probably wouldn't do naturally, but you have a, quite a long list of accolades in some of the sports you've been involved in, some of the teams you've been involved in. Could you go through some of them and some specific to some of the teams as well? Um, 
well, basketball, um, we won the Commonwealth Gold Medal, which was the first medal that England had ever won at basketball. That was very good. Uh, still, still talk to my captain every week. Um, football uh, started at Carlisle, lovely Carlisle, loved it, loved it. More sheep than people. Um, beautiful place, nice people. Went to Derby County, um, then Manchester United, then Middlesbrough as assistant manager, became the first non-football person to become assistant manager in the Premier League. Then to England, uh, worked with the England team, um, and then on to FC20 in Holland. Uh, at the same time I was working with, I think I've worked with nine national teams of different sports. So quite a journey. What's, what's for you like the thing that you latched onto the most, like in terms of your career, like that you enjoyed the most and you, you wanted to push and work towards? I, I think the, initially it was wanting to be a good teacher to help children and help students. And, um, and then it, it's become a fascination with sports psychology. I think it's so important because I see how much it helps people. And I've become fascinated with the process. And it's interesting, coaching and, and psychology are two of the things you can never master. You can never master them. Coaching is, evolves all the time. And, and psychology is, is so deep, so wide, that you, you, I feel as though I've only touched the surface. And there's so much more, which is why at my age I'm still doing working because I'm actually interested in what I'm finding out. How, how would you describe sports psychology to somebody who's never heard of it before? Well, it, it's, it's about maximising on yourself. It's about dealing with your own doubts, fears and anxieties. About letting the positive you defeat the negative you. Because really psychology is a, is a battle of you versus you. We, we think the opposition's over there in the other dressing room, but actually it's in here. Who am I gonna to be today? Am I gonna be my best self or my weaker self? So a lot of my psychology with teams and athletes and coaches comes down to fighter versus victim. We have a choice, there's a good story. Clint Eastwood was playing golf and his partner, this last year, his partner said, Clint, how old are you? He said, 88. He said, 88 on Monday. And his partner said, wow, that's wonderful, what are you doing? He said, I'm starting a new movie. He said, how do you do it? He said, I wake up every morning and don't let the old man in. And that's life. We wake up every morning and make a decision who we're going to be. I've got Parkinson's disease. So getting up in the morning is not so easy for me. Getting dressed is not so easy. I have to make a decision. Am I going to be a fighter today or am I going to be a victim? And that's what fascinates me with sports psychology. And, and I suppose in a nutshell, sports psychology is deciding whether you're going to be a fighter or a victim. Uh, that's so applicable as well to everybody in life. Like you say, like yours isn't based on sports. So like in terms of other people waking up each morning and deciding you know, what, how, how they're going to be, are they going to be a positive outlook or a negative outlook? 
Is that something, can we take those lessons and apply them to our lives? Absolutely. My latest book takes 20 lessons from sport where I've dealt with somebody in sport, some quite famous athletes, um, but they've got a, a mental and emotional problem getting in the way of their performance. And I, I explain how together we dealt with it, overcame it, and they went on to become what they were capable of. But then I draw it parallels to everybody. I mean, in a sense, we're all high performers. We all step up every day to earn a living, to maintain relationships, to take the responsibility of owning property, to raise children. We're all high performers. So the lessons of my high performers in sport carry, carry across into life. Is there anything in particular when initially when you were seeing athletes that you would draw a, con a commonality, like there was something in, in common with the athletes that was stopping them from performing or issues that they were having? I tend to ask athletes three questions when they come to see me and I, I've, I've had a lot of distinguished athletes come to see me over the years. And my three questions are, what do you want? How badly do you want it? And how much are you willing to suffer? And very often, everything revolves around the first question, what do you want? Because a lot of people are unclear what they want from life. They don't sit down and think through. We, we are writing our own life story every day, and yet we don't think about it. What, what, who do we want to be? Where do we want to live? What life do we want to lead? When we've finished our life, come to the end of our life and look back, what do we want to say that we've done? So what do you want is a very powerful question. And then uh, if, if an athlete says, I want to be the best, Bill, fine. How badly do you want it? Because it's going to, you've got to pay a price to be the best. The best pay a big price. You've got to work harder, you've got to commit more, you've got to take more responsibility, you've got to deal with more ups and downs. And if, if we can deal with that question, how much are you willing to suffer? Because I work with gold medal champions and they suffer every day. They work enormously hard. They sacrifice enormous things in order to get that success. So uh, we were speaking about this before that we've been following two, the two strong men, the Stoltman brothers, yeah. and one of them just won World Strongest Man, and one of them is trying to win World Strongest Man this year. And the closer and closer he gets to it, the more of the the price he's paying, the more pain he's going through, the more sacrifice. Is there a point where you with your athletes that you worked with that they took it too far? The is there a point where you have to tell them to stop or like, what is the boundary, the, the line that's, that can't be crossed? The boundary or line revolves around physical and mental well-being. So I would be very careful not to take somebody to the state where they were injuring themselves mentally or physically, where obsession with a goal overcame common sense, understanding. So there, there are points where I, I, I'm also, part of my job is to be a truth teller. Many athletes are surrounded by people who don't tell them the truth, as, as indeed many people are. 
a, a good friend is, is somebody who tells you the truth. That helps you more. Part of my role is to tell athletes the truth, and one of those truths may be, I think you've got to face up to the fact you've not got the ability to go any further. You've run your race. Now relax, enjoy it, you did really well. You maxed out on what you were capable of doing. So if they're not, as long as they're not pushing up against that and it's not creating a mental straw, they're allowed to sort of extend themselves through pain. And I think you use the word obsession then. Obsession, I mean, you see it in athletes all the time. That's okay to have an obsession with a goal. Obsession's a difficult word for me because I think focus, a focus on a goal is a better word. It's more controlled, more legitimate. So I think obsession means you lose control of the process. Focus is more, you're more in control of the process. As long as I feel the athlete's in control of what they're trying to achieve, I'm fairly happy with that. It's when they start to lose control and they lose their, their reason why because very often an athlete continues into the pain barrier because of the people around them. They don't want to let people down. They themselves would be comfortable stepping out and saying, that's it, I've done enough. But they, they persist because of the pressure of their, their support group. So obviously you've worked with a lot of athletes. What is, when, when you say about pay the price, the pain that they go through, how does that look for somebody like a gold medal winner? It looks like an everyday commitment where you wake up every day and say, just like Clint Eastwood, you say, today I'm going to be a champion. I work with Adam Peter, the gold medal swimmer, and he gets, arrives at the swimming pool at six o'clock in the morning. And before he goes in, he stops and says, today I will train like a champion. And he trains for two hours like a champion. Nobody in the pool can get near him. He works so hard. And he comes back again at six o'clock in the evening and he stops outside the arena and says, tonight I'm going to train like a champion. And he trains like a champion. I, I gave a talk some years ago when Adam was a bit younger uh, about attitudes to training. And I said, there's various types of attitudes to training. There's the just turn up so that you get athletes who just turn up. It's training tonight, I'll just, I'll just turn up. You get athletes who turn up to compete, or turn up to train, sorry, turn up to train. They'll turn up, they'll do the requisite amount of work, but that's it. Athletes who turn up to compete, they put a bit more effort in. They try, they try to be the best amongst their group. Then there's the athletes who train to win. They train every day, every session, so they win on match night. And then I remember saying to Adam's group, there are just those very few players who train to dominate. They train so hard that winning is inevitable on race night. And Adam said, that clicked with me. I decided I was going to train to dominate. So he said, when I go into the Olympic final, I know I know I'm going to win. I know I've done more than anybody else. I feel so good. That's given me goosebumps, that has. That's amazing. So I think as well as, as a non-athlete, a non-professional athlete, 
we see the athletes and we think a lot of the psychology is based around game day, you know, it's race day, whatever it is. Um, so how, how much is based on the consistency of showing up 360 days a year, whatever it is, and having the right psychology in those moments? Everything. Everything. Race day should be inevitable. Winning should be inevitable. It, that's the price that athletes pay. Race day is fun because there's a crowd, there's cameras, there's your family, your friends, and it's nice to do that. What they don't see, the people in the arena don't see, is you on your own at six o'clock in the morning, working out, sweating, struggling. And that's what makes champions, the ability to motivate themselves to do the work on their own that leads to success in the arena. What, what builds an athlete up, so we've got the training aspect of it, but there's so many more like meticulous little bits. Like in your experience, what goes into creating an athlete, including like diet, sleep, like all these things that they're thinking about? Well, there are four main elements. There's the physical element. You've got to take care of your strength, speed, stamina, nutrition, sleep, health. There's the technical element. E each activity has a skill base, so you've got to develop the skills. So for Adam PT, it would be skills, swimming stroke, turning, diving in, turning. Um, and then you've got to develop the tactical intelligence to compete, uh, follow a plan, know your position on the field, uh, know how you relate to the members of the team, know how to deal with certain situations in the game, one nil up or one nil down. And then there's the mental element, that's building the confidence and belief that you are a champion, that you can do this. So it's, it's that, that change from being in the dressing room, the comfort zone, to being in the tunnel before a big game, breathing in, to going on the field and believing and having the confidence to do what you do well. Okay, so let's take a step back. How, how did you get into the football? What was the pull to get for, to switch sports to football? Well, it was by accident, really. I, I had this, I, I'd finished coaching England and I'd had this really growing interest in sports psychology, but I was a principal of a college and um, I, we, we hired some of our facilities to the Football Association for coaching courses and a chap called Mick Wadsworth came along and uh, some or other we finished up having a cup of tea together and we got talking and he, he became fascinated and when he held a course in the summer at Lillyshaw for 200 youth courses, coaches, he invited me to speak to him what they could learn about what sports psychology could do for football. And uh, that was it, really, because in the audience was Steve McLaren, um, a young under-17 coach for Oxford United, and he went on to become a, a famous coach, and I went on his journey. I went to Mick with Mick to Carlisle first, and then with Steve McLaren on the journey to Derby, Man United, England, Middlesbrough, FC20. So... It sort of happened. It's one of those nice things in life where you're not... I'd reached the age where I wasn't looking for anything. I thought I'd do, I had a pretty good career and I was fine. But I had this interest and I, I quite liked sharing it. And 
there was, I met some good people who allowed me the opportunity to share it with football players and, and actually they took to it quite well. In a general sense, uh, in sports, um, just across the board, is sports psychology still overlooked or is it, is it becoming like more of a thing at the moment? It, it is. It's, it's on its way. It's going to be very big. Um, I think there's a generation of coaches that are going through that don't know a lot about it and perhaps a little bit intimidated by it. The word psychology can be frightening. Um, but there's a, a young generation of coaches coming along who are far more familiar with it and far less threatened and they will involve. I mean, it's, it, it's hard now to, to think of somebody, a superstar athlete who wouldn't have a sports psychologist on their support staff because the stresses and strains that they're putting. I'm thinking about young Miss Raducanu, who's just won the American Open tennis at 18. The world has changed for her with one victory. The media can't get enough of her. The commercial opportunities. She's won one tournament. She's 18, 19 now, I think. She needs help. I mean, she's a very sensible girl, very intelligent girl, but I still think she would benefit from having a sports psychologist on her team. So have you seen young athletes like that go through that kind of burst onto the scene? Like if, if you have, what kind of work do you have to do for them and what are the kind of things that they will face along, like in, the, in those moments? Well, I think they, it's, it's very difficult for a, a young athlete suddenly to get a multi-million pound contract or become a celebrity um, because it affects them and it affects, it affects the people around them. The people around them change because they've suddenly, instead of this being friends with this kid who's good at sport, they're friends with this superstar who can, who's rich, can, can introduce them to things, can do things. And it becomes a very heady mixture. I, I remember talking to David Beckham at Man United about being an ordinary person with an extraordinary talent. So I would say to him, David, you're an ordinary person with an extraordinary talent. You have got an extraordinary talent. He was a lovely player, a lovely man, by the way, a lovely player. But you're an ordinary person. When you go out this training ground, make sure you stop at those red lights. You're not that extraordinary, you can go through red lights. So it's about keeping balance. What do you want? Do you want to be a celebrity? Or do you want to be the best player you can be? If you want to be the best player you can be, forget that. Concentrate on your training. So with someone like David, like, how would you, what was the process of work? Like, how much was based on performance and how much is based on the outside world, because I mean, someone like him, like it's this constant thing. He steps outside and he's surrounded by paparazzi and fans and stuff. Like, how much work's based on each thing? Well, the work is based on his sporting performance. The outside thing only gets included when it affects his sporting performance. So he was actually very good at dealing with it. Um, because it, he, he was one who evolved dramatically quickly because of his, his wife. 
Um, but he was, he was good at dealing with it. But I, you learn to see the signs of change. So, for example, I remember being at FC20, we had an 18-year-old boy who was very good. And he was a humble boy, a nice boy. He came, he used to come in a, to the training ground in an old beat-up Volkswagen, which was rather nice. Um, and he got his first contract, which was, I think, a million euros or something like that. And the next day he came up in the biggest, shiniest car you've ever seen. And that triggered my thinking, oh my goodness me, my goodness me, there's going to be a problem. And he was out of the game in two years. If you're enjoying this episode of Mulligan Brothers Podcast with Bill Bassett, please consider heading over to mulliganbrothers.com where you guys make it possible with your support to do the documentaries and these podcast episodes. We are self-funded, so all the help has been absolutely amazing. You can now get the new Momentum Mori poster, a poster to remind you that you are mortal. It's got 80 years plotted out in tiny little squares and you shade it in up until your, uh, how old you are right now. So mine's shaded into 30 years. So if you want to be reminded that you're going to die, head over to morganbrewers.com and buy the poster uh, where all the profits go back into creating this content. But before that, let's jump back into the podcast. Wow. So can, can that be a thing that's too much too soon for these these young athletes. It is unless they get good advice. It's still the best thing that an athlete can have is two good parents. So if you're if you were to trying to convince a coach or even an athlete um, to take up sports psychology, how would you explain it to them? Well, I would explain it to them by demonstrating the power of the mindset on performance. Um, because if if I say to a coach, is it your aim to create excellent football players or rugby players or basketball players or whatever the coach is coaching. And they say, yes. So I said, just describe to me, give me words that describe an excellent player in your sport. And they'd give me a, a, a page of words. And I'd say, let me just do something. And I'd circle the words, leave some uncircled, circle the words. And I said, what's the difference between the two? And, and one, the circled words would be dominate the page. And they say the circled words are all mental attitude. I'd say, there you go. So if you describe Cristiano Ronaldo, you finish up with a page of mental attributes, courage to perform, whatever. Um, so that's the way I convince them. So how much do you teach the three words that are not mental and how much do you teach the mental well we don't teach the mental there you go wow so yeah i mean if i was to think just then when you said about an athlete i would most of them would be mental yeah, yeah when uh someone like myself or a normal person thinks of an athlete we think training in the gym practicing reps whatever it is but that's just a, such a small percentage it's so interesting and as we were saying before this we was interviewing a sports psychologist recently it just blows my mind, I'm just, and it's just it's just interesting to see athletes starting to work with them. You know, it, in the Olympics and the Olympic athletes, would you say that ninety nine percent of those guys are working with sports psychologists? Not ninety nine percent, but a lot more, a lot more. Um, I've worked with British swimming now for the last eight years since London, which was a very disappointing Olympics. I was brought in immediately after London to create a winning environment 
to change the environment. And we went to Rio and had the most successful one. And then we went to Tokyo and had an even more successful one. And I think that some sports are now far more familiar with sports psychologists and they've got them embedded in the system. One of the things that this was on the website, um, your, your own website, was the word psychology, we just spoke about this, can be off-putting for people. <laughs> so you like to use the word stretch and stretching performance. Like, what, what do you mean when you say stretching performance? Well, psychology for many people means shrink. And, and that's an unfortunate connection that I found when the newspapers first got some understanding of what I was doing. So my first headline in the newspaper was shrink talks to football players. Um, so I, I, I don't see myself as a shrink at all. I see myself as a stretch because I'm only focused in their performance. What can I do to help you perform better? So I might stretch it one or two percent, which at the highest level is, is quite significant. Uh, I, I actually think it probably is more than that, but you never know. You can't tell, you can't measure it, can you? Well, that, that's something that I was going to go on to next, is that extra 1% to 2%. It is an extra 1% to 2%, but how much more, like how important is that extra little bit? Ooh. It, it, it can be everything. It can be everything. But I, I think what, what it is, an extra 1% or 2% on the surface... But underneath, what, what happens when a sports psychologist works with an athlete is we change the way they think. We give them another language so that when they're faced with something, when they're not with us, they have something to go to, a sort of language like fighter or victim. So many, many athletes who I've worked with in the past who see me now and lovely in the chat say, I find myself just in life or dealing with the kids or whatever at home and I'm going, am I a fighter or a victim? So it, it, it actually creates a, a, a framework for thinking more positively about life. How, how applicable is it to people like entrepreneurs, business owners, um, you know, all, all these people, people in education, the, the work that you're doing with athletes? Very applicable because... As I said before, we're all high performers and some of those people have got very high performance jobs and some of them are entering very... I mean, I work in the challenge industry. There are a body of people in this country who avoid challenge, stay below the line, don't take any responsibility, work for somebody else, live in somebody else's property. And they don't risk the challenge, but. The people I work with step over the line every day and face challenge. They can fail. They can be embarrassed. They can get hurt. So that challenge industry extends across business, education and sport and life. And so I work with people who face many negatives and I help them change, reframe those negatives into possible positives. So I think... I've often thought... We're talking now about the National Health Service being burned out. I think they need coaches in hospital. Coaches who look at the people, not just look at the systems. 
Everybody in hospital is concerned with systems, making patients better. But who, who looks after the people who are doing that? A coach coming into a business would look after the people in the business. That could make a massive impact on the business. You're just talking about the, a certain type of person who takes that step over the line every day. Um, something that I feel like we've noticed a lot with some of the people who watch our videos and some of the people who have struggled to succeed is the fear of failing is so immobilizing that they won't even try. <laughs> They'd prefer not to try and find out. I mean, is that something that you, you've seen? And if, if it is, how do people deal with that? I think that's very common. I, I think that when faced by challenge, the mind skips into the future and says, what if I fail? What if I am embarrassed? What if I get injured? What if I... And I have to give them a different way of thinking. And the thinking is, I may get fail. I may get embarrassed. I may get injured, but I can deal with it because I'm strong. And because I prefer to be the kind of person who steps up and faces the challenge than the kind of person who stays below the line and avoids challenge. What kind of person do you want to be? What do you want? How badly do you want it? How much are you willing to suffer? Those three questions are high performers face every day. One of the uh, things I think, again, with, with athletes is that it's like they're this special type of person. I'd, I'd be interested to find out if that's the case, like you are born a certain way, your brain ticks in a certain way, so you, you, you can become a high achiever, even in, in other realms. Is that the case that it's a, takes a special type of person or can everybody step into high achievement and pushing it to different, like pushing the boundaries of different places? There's a great phrase, genetics deals the cards, environment plays the hand. So genetics uh, and you, your background does influence your disposition to success in various activities. But environment, the opportunity, I, I talked about my environment in Manchester MCA. Do you want to join in? That was a major, major influence on my life, those five words. Um, so environment does, does give opportunities to people to maximize themselves. I'm a great believer in that anybody can change at any stage of their life. We are writing our own story, our own life story, but there's no reason why we can't stop have a mental time out and go, what do I really want? And start from that moment on rewriting your story by facing the challenge, achieving for yourself and putting your fears and anxieties to one side. So I, 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 I would never give up on somebody, never. How do, the, how do those type of people, I think, because the automatic response I see on some of our videos, because we, we do a lot of videos with elite, elite athletes and high achievers, is, well, it's all right for them. You know, it's, it's okay for them. That, this is the comments we'll get. It's, it's okay for them. They, he's got genetic, decent genetics, or it's all right for him. He's from an affluent background, or it's all right for There's always something that, you know, they have that I don't have, and that's why I haven't got it. How would you initially work with somebody that, to like flip that mindset around. Another great thing I wrote once was, there's a thousand excuses, but not a single reason. 
I did that with Bristol Bears Rugby last, last season. They loved it. Uh, when you step into the challenge zone, the number of excuses for getting out backed into your comfort zone from there multiplies. I'm too tired. It's too difficult. I'm having a bad day. Nobody likes me. Uh, and so I would teach them to face up to those excuses and refuse to be a victim and teach them a fighter mentality about all those things may be there, but I'm still going to do it. I'm going to deal with it. So a thousand excuses, but not one reason not to achieve. And even if you don't achieve at the highest level, you may not have the same genetic disposition as somebody else. But there's an awful lot of players playing in the Premier League football in this country who are B for talent, not quite as genetically superior, but A for attitude. And attitude is something anybody can have. Anybody. Talent is something that may be a little bit God-given, but attitude is anybody's. You can decide to improve your attitude any day. Okay, so just to emphasise on that point, because I think that is, is, is really important to this, is if you've got that predisposition to have a negative mindset and a defeatist mindset, you can switch it around to have the positive attitude that could take you, if you're a young person, to becoming a high achiever in, in sports or high achiever in business. You're in control. You're in control of your mind. It's your mind. So you, you, you decide what you think. We're not stuck. We're not stuck with the mindset we've got. No. No, it's, just, it's the mindset that's with us for certain reasons. We've got to change those reasons. We've got to decide we want something different. And then we can develop a fresh mindset. If you was looking at an athlete, um, I know it's, it's, there's so much that goes into the psychology, but where, how would you have them work on themselves to start off with? Like, what's the first few things they'd start to look at? What do you want? How badly do you want it? How much are you willing to suffer? With the what do you want, is there any exercises they can do, like write down goals? Is there anything that you recommend personally? There's an exercise in, 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 in my latest book which says, uh, who am I? And it, it is a written exercise. You write down, I mean, it starts with a dream. If you, if you don't have the dream, then you're not really going to go anywhere. But you have a dream. And then I have to help them translate the dream into commitment. And then translate the commitment into belief into action, into challenge, into resilience, into fight of it, fight of mentality. So it's a process, but what, there are many exercises, many exercises, but they're all the same. They're reframing your thinking from negative to positive. They're all saying, I remember doing an exercise with the England women's soccer team and uh, they were guilty of negative self-talk. They talk themselves down. So I gave them an exercise where I would give them a negative and they would have to shout out a positive. We're not good enough. We're great. And the best one was, we're never going to win today. And the answer came out, 
we're, we're going to win because we're the meanest bitches on this field today. And I just cheered and clapped them. That's... Well, that's a, that is a powerful piece, right? When we're talking about dreams, I think for me, um, there's like, I think when you say the word dreams, it's like um, not a negative view on it because I have loads of dreams. But I think when I speak into a sports psychologist, it's like, is it all right to use the word dreams? Is it okay to have dreams? Like, is, is that important to have a dream? Absolutely, absolutely. It's young children have, have dreams, and I, I aspired to be a, a great basketball player. When I came into basketball, I was going to be Michael Jordan of England. It didn't turn out that way. Um, but when you, maturity is about understanding that dreams cannot always be fulfilled. But the exercise of committing to them and trying for them has been excellent. It's been worthwhile ways of life. And then you divert your dream. I diverted my dream from being the best Michael Jordan to being the best Phil Jackson, the best coach, basketball coach. So <coughs> I, I love dreams. It's just about interpreting dreams into reality. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's where the negative connotations come from, is like people, it's not having the material, like, like, like putting structure around them, making them yeah. into something that is actually achievable. It's like just le left up there to to not have anything to target towards. When I speak to children in the high school, local high schools, which I, I do, I'm happy to do community work. When I speak to them, I say, how many of you are dreaming of passing your A-levels to go to university? Well, let me tell you this. It's a great dream, I love it. Well done. But the only way you can fulfill that dream is what you do today. You can't just hope it's going to happen. You've got to make it happen. So you have a dream in three months' time you're going to pass your examinations for university. So what you have to do, because you have to be excellent on that day, you have to be excellent today. You have to study hard today. And then you have to study hard tomorrow. And then you have to study hard the next day. And you know what? That dream is coming to you. You're not chasing it. It's coming to you. And if you're excellent every day, I guarantee you'll be excellent on examination day and you've achieved your dream. I think a scary thing for some people about dreams is, because I was the same, I was going to play in the NBA. That was, and I wholeheartedly believe that's what I was training for every single day. And I think, and I failed, I failed, um, didn't make it, I'm here. <laughs> but it's worked out for the best. And it's like, looking back, I can see how those paths happened. How, how do you convince somebody to, to work towards goals without that promise of success? And to also, con not convince them, but to let them know that it will lead you to where you need to be anyway. I've just spoken to a, a coach for an American girls soccer team today, and they've been beaten in the playoffs. And she's upset best word I can say, devastated. But I explained to her that in, in the national championships, all but one team will journey will end in defeat. It, it's, it's okay if it ends in defeat. It's, it's, it's not as nice as winning, but it's okay. Because what you understand is it's the process, not the outcome. 
It's the process of sport that makes it so meaningful and valuable in life. It's the things you learn on the journey that are the key things in your life that help you be a better husband, father, friend, granddad. Some people will go all the way and win. And fantastic. Brilliant. But many people, 90% of people in the challenge zone, will only go part way. But it's still rewarding because it's the process that gives you the benefits. The outcome is just cake on the end of the meal. With um, some of the athletes that you've seen who didn't make it all the way, the, they obviously they had lessons learned for sure. Like in that whole process of trying to become a professional athlete, you're going to learn lessons. Is it always the case that those lessons are taken away, those, that knowledge is taken away, or does it sometimes slip out from these people? No, I, I think from my experience and, and the feedback that former clients have given me, the way of thinking when we're working on them as an athlete becomes integrated in their way of thinking as a person. So I think that the, the introduction of sports psychology to an athlete you not only you, you can't just deal with the athlete, you're dealing with the person as well. And there's a crossover. If, if I teach the athlete how to avoid victim mentality, how to slip into fighting, how to transfer to fighter mentality, they're going to have that in life. When I got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, I was driving back from the hospital with my wife and she, she rang my, my second son, Philip, in London and said, Philip, your dad's got Parkinson's. He's, he's gone into victim mentality. And I heard this booming laugh at the other end of the phone. And he said, I'll ring back in 10 minutes. And he rang back and he and his wife, Haley had Googled Parkinson's, researched it and said, Dad, we'll be up this week. It was Thursday. And he said, we'll be up this weekend with the boys. We're going to have a family action plan meeting on handling Parkinson's. And I was straight back into fighter mentality. So there's a very big crossover between situations in sport and situations in life. I'm just going to go through some of these chapters, just the, what I can see here, the lessons. Okay, well, this one's interesting straight away. I, I'm probably going to say that for each lesson. But um, taking responsibility, um, what's the importance of that? Lesson one. Well, I've talked a little bit about crossing the line leaving your comfort zone of letting everybody take decisions for you and, and then beginning to take decisions for yourself, facing up to the challenge of life and sport. <coughs> and everything begins with taking responsibility. If you take responsibility, the number of excuses diminishes because it's your responsibility. If you don't take responsibility, it's always somebody else's fault. You've always got a way out of the, 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 the issue. And... I've dealt with teams who didn't take responsibility. It was always his fault. So you'd say, what happened on the... He, he did it. And that's the death of a team. So you're looking for people who go, okay, it happened. I will deal with it. I will learn from it. I will move on. So taking responsibility is, is, is the start of controlling your mindset and your life's journey. I guess that's why we start with it on lesson one. Um, I'm not going to do all of them because I do, I do genuinely believe it would be better for us to promote, promote doing the book. Is it on Audible, by the way, the, yes. the book? Okay, fantastic. That's, that's brilliant. We can link that all through as well. 
Um, lesson four, though, is set no limits and believe in yourself. Many, many people suffer from... I did, from my upbringing. Um, my upbringing on a rather poor estate um, placed me in a certain place in life and gave me certain inhibitions about who I could be and who I couldn't be. Uh, but going to grammar school and going to the YMCA raised my limits because I met other people who had done other things and th they felt I could. They became supporters, my cheerleaders. And so I became the first person in my family to go to university. So I, I think w one of the things sports psychology does is, is find out if an athlete's got self-imposed limits and find out why are you limiting yourself to that level of achievement. You could do much better than that. So we're breaking through barriers. It's really interesting because that really closely matches up with um, a motivational speaker who we used to speak to, friends of ours, called Inky Johnson. He was, um, he was an American football player mm. and he had a life-changing injury where he lost the use of his right arm. And he, it was just before he was drafted for the NFL. He was like one of the draft picks for the NFL. Um, and his is um, exposure and belief. And I think he's similar situation was from a poor background and his coach had taken him out into the world places and he'd seen steak dinner for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that gave him that exposure to, to the world and what was actually capable, like these, these levels that are above where he was. Um, how important is it to get out of our surroundings? And like for you, grammar school was obviously a big one, like to try and get that exposure. It, it, it's absolutely essential because you don't know what you don't know and you can restrict yourself in life because you don't know there's another kind of life, there's other options available. One of the things that has changed about that from my time is that television and film bring in the world to your front room. So kids in, in, a, in a slum area, a poor area, can actually see there is another way of life. And I think that's one of the reasons we have so much issues with immigration now, because those poor people are looking on the television and saying, wow, look how these people live. I would like to live like that, which is quite understandable. And, and making tremendous efforts to, to, to achieve that. That's, yeah, very interesting point. I think, t yeah, TV, YouTube now, like people are yeah. sharing their lives, like yeah. this, which I think is a great tool for people to go, oh, fantastic. this is capable for me. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic tool. Um, that's a, I'll leave that one out. That's a lovely one. Stay positive, be your own cheerleader. Um, ra raising your bottom line. That's a re really interesting point. Raise your bottom line. Aim for mastery, not perfection. Yes, uh, that came from interviewing a, 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 an, in, an international player who was beset by anxiety. And I did an exercise with him. He, he was very inconsistent, brilliant athlete, brilliant, but could dip in, uh, alarmingly and quickly. And I discovered that he was dominated by fear of mistakes. So we did an exercise where I, I set a top line and said, what, out of 100%, what's your best ever performance? 
best ever. It's 95%. So 95%. Give me another percentage for your worst ever performance. And he put down 60%. So 60% to 95%. I said, that's alarming. That's alarming. What is an acceptable level for trust, winning the trust of your coaches and fellow players? And he said, it has to be 85%, Bill. So we put 85% in. So I said, instead of worrying about being the best you can be every game, let's focus on making that 85%, becoming more consistent, becoming more solid. That would involve forgiving yourself for mistakes on the field and staying in the game, staying consistent. And that affected his performance enormously because in order to achieve the 85%, which he had to check in with me about at the end of every game, instead of fluctuating because he, he was consumed with mistakes, he began to think more about consistency and making that bottom line, raising his bottom line was raised. And he's had a very successful career. I don't know, you must get extreme satisfaction when something clicks with athletes. Like, you know, for him, that would have been like an aha moment and he's coming away with it. I mean, what does that mean to you when you when you figure that person's psychology out? Well, it's, it's quite difficult actually because I deal with intangibles, the non-measurable. So it's very hard for me to say, I really helped that kid. Cause, but I get an instinctive feeling that maybe I, 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 I did help. So I, I think it's hard to, for me to say out loud publicly that I really influenced that athlete's career because they're intangibles, belief, confidence, uh, issues like raising your bottom line. But I think I instinctively know I did offer some help. Is, is, what's the, what is the goal for you as a psychologist? Like when we're talking on a one-to-one, -one, is that the goal to, to get those moments? The goal is to make better athletes and better people. And I think that's, the whole goal, we're, we're there to make better athletes, the one or two percent we talked about, and better people, people that are more able to write their own story in a better, more positive, productive way. I, I, will, I wasn't going to do this one, but we will. And then I think I'll just pick a couple off the back. But um, this one, I feel, is something that some people forget quite often, is success is a series of small steps. Yes, um, the story behind that was uh, I was in my office in Derby County and the manager, the fearsome Jim Smith, fierce man, brought in this rather sheepish looking 19 year old and said, Bill, you've got 21 days to turn this kid round, otherwise I'm getting rid of him. And left this young lad with me. And I realised that he was a good lad. He was a very talented player, but his attitude was appalling. But he, he came from a background where he'd never been taught any behavioural characteristics. So he didn't know what he didn't know. So what, what I did was I decided it was, it'd be too much for him to try and change him at once. So 
I decided we'd do one thing a day. So I said, tomorrow, he used to, they had to report for 10.30, he used to come in at 10.29 every day. So I said, tomorrow you'll be in at 9.30. 9.30, Bill? I said, well, if you're not, I'm going to pass you back to the manager. So he was in at 9.30. And then he came to see me in the afternoon and said, uh, right, tomorrow you come in at 9.30, you're going to have your hair cut. He had long hair. Didn't, I said, look like an athlete, look like a professional. So he came in at 9.30 the next day with very smart haircut. The next day you're going to come in at 9.30 with your hair smart and you're going to dress smart. You're going to dress like you're a professional. I don't know how to dress. Have a word with Stefano Aranio, our Italian. Magnificent man. Beautiful dresser. So he went to see Stefano. Stefano took him out shopping. Came in the next day looked like a king. The next day he had to go, when he came in, he had to go to see everybody and shake hands with them and wish them good morning. Look them in the eye. The next day he was first on the training field. The next day he was last up, and it were all done. So at the end of 21 days, he was a different person because what he found was all those little changes affected the way people saw him. Absolutely amazing. Um, all these chapters we could, let's, uh, I think we'll just cover this one because we, we spoke about it, refuse to be a victim, develop resilience from setbacks. When, when you try to achieve something in life, it's inevitable there will be setbacks. If it was easy, everybody would do it. So it's, it's tough. It's tough rising, rising to the top of your career. It's, top, it's tough holding a relationship together. It's tough buying a house. It's tough being a champion. So there will be setbacks. So we need a process for dealing with setbacks. And we have to develop the resilience to handle that situation. There's a great story of Kobe Bryant, the basketball player. In his first year as a professional, his team reached the playoffs and he was the superstar, the young superstar. And in the last minute of the game, he had three shots to win the game for his team and missed all three. And at the end of the game, the interview, the commentators were astounded. This great talent missed all three shots. And he was sat down on the bench and his head was in his hands. And they were talking about how he must feel. He must feel dreadful. And when he got up to come off the court, they managed to get an interview with him and said, Kobe, you were sat on the bench with your head in your hands. You must have felt terrible. And he looked at them and he said, what's feeling got to do with it? I was working out why I missed those shots. I now know why I missed those shots and I can do something about it. And that's a great coping strategy when you have a setback. Setbacks knock you emotionally off balance. But you've got, to, you've got to work beyond the emotion to get to, why did I have that setback? What can I learn from it? How am I going to avoid it in the future? And go on. I love that. That's an amazing story. So, uh, it, you know, just, just whilst we're just on that, there's some athletes that are absolutely fascinating. Kobe is one of them, like the way he would turn up before a game and shoot for hours and hours and end. And after, sometimes after a game, he'd shoot for hours and hours. And then, is it? I mean, what what is that like? Are they like? Is that just the psychology is on another level? Like how how are they doing five or six times more than other athletes? Like what's what's going through them as in the in the head and the processes? I, I think some of it's love. They love what they're doing. They love being there. It's it's the place where they feel at home. Um, and the second thing is that. 
for some athletes, that's what gives them confidence to go on the court and face the, the crowd and the, the challenge. That preparation is the key to confidence. If you are in the tunnel at Manchester United, many of the, the players used to tell me, if you've done a good week's work in preparation for the game, you feel ready to play. If you've had a, a poor week's work, you feel less ready. And that, that can be vital in terms of confidence to face the challenge. Mm. I mean, yeah, some of the, I just am shocked by some of the, this is, the, I mean, we're talking about professionals, um, but the levels of, of it, even in professional sports, there's a wide gap as well. Um, what does it take to be the best of the best, the LeBron James, Michael Jones, Cristiano Ronaldo's? What does it take to be at the pinnacle? Well, you've got to be A-grade talent, a, a, a really A-grade talent. These, these are exceptional physical specimens, technical specimens. And you've got to be A-grade attitude. And they're the gods. I've, I've been through a long career, probably dealt with four of them. And these, these are the gods. These are people who have enormous talent at their disposal. But this, the attitude to work every day, to commit to the sacrifice of being the best. Okay, so this is going to be a really interesting one then. So you've worked with four or five. How many had all the ability and the skill, but didn't have the ability? How many people, uh, the attitude, sorry. How many was it, they could have been the gods and, and up there, but they just didn't have the attitude for it? Oh, I've come across plenty. I mean, they're the tragedies of sport. You see them on the field, in, on the basketball court, and, and they're brimming with talent brimming with it and you think my goodness how good this kid is but they don't have the attitude so they consistently let you down sometimes don't turn up sometimes leave the fight halfway through i'm having a bad day whereas your athlete with lesser talent b b plus but massive attitude will survive that and go on. And they're, they're the ones it's a pleasure to work with. They're the ones, the world is full of those professional athletes who've not quite as big as they should be, strong as they should be, quick as they could be, but you love them for their attitude. Fighters, fighter mentality through and through, never let you down, battle to the end. They're the ones who win. Can I... Which, which ones are the more powerful of the two, attitude or...? Well, it's interesting. You can win with less talent, but you can't win with less attitude. So, resolve that for yourself. This is something that I've... We, well, everybody at Mulligan Rose has started doing recently, and that is keeping a journal. Um, so keep a journal, release your fears and move on. So what does that mean to you? Well, sometimes it's difficult to come to terms with the raging emotions in your head, your doubts, fears and anxieties. Um, and so one of the techniques I use is to, to get those out 
onto the page. And it, it's quite relieving actually to sometimes get them out of your head, clear your head by writing them down on the page. Um, and then on the opposite page, I say, once you've written them down, write down what you could do about them tomorrow, how you could help yourself tomorrow. And then we keep doing that and gradually they're developing the coping skills of dealing with them. So they're recognizing their own traumas, but they're also recognizing by focusing on this, I, I actually got rid of that. So they're recognizing coping strategies. So I think keeping a journal is a very good way of taking your innermost turbulent emotions out of your head where it's damaging and putting it on a piece of paper and making it an objective exercise, making it a rational exercise rather than an emotional exercise, and then beginning to read and see every day what's happening to you and beginning to find ways around that, coping strategies. For, and it's interesting, when you start with a, a player who's in trouble, the page on the left goes shorter and shorter and shorter. Every, every, and that's a nice sign. I love it. I th practically, we've been using journals quite a lot recently. It's something that we're trying to get into more of. And for me, it's helped loads just writing it out. It feels like I'm getting more solid thoughts as well and I'm becoming more aligned with it. Um, that was fantastic. What I usually do at the end is to make sure that I've covered everything is ask Luke. Yeah, I, I was going to ask like, one question, but kind of, kind of covered it, which is... You talk about attitude and talent. Like, can attitude be enough without the talent? No. Well, it, 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 it can take you so far, but you have to have some capacity to perform in the arena. Um, you, can't, it, you can't just win with attitude. It, it will take you so far, but in the end, you need enough talent to allow you to perform the skills necessary for the game. Is there anywhere where people can find you or the best place to find you if they're trying to find your work and stuff? Well, if they Google, they can, there's quite a bit on there. They can just put Bill Basic in and they can track down a number of things I've done. There's the website. There's, I'm around, so people will find me if they want to. I've generally found that to be the basis. Lovely. And everything from today that we've spoken about is going to be linked down below and um, the book is also available on Audible, which we seem to have fantastic success with, with the people who watch the videos. Yes. They love to use the Audible, so we'll link the Audible link down below as well. well. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, I that's did. amazing. It was the hardest two days I've ever done. I went to a studio in Manchester and uh, locked in a little studio. The producer was outside, nice young man, and uh, I, I had to read it, but I had to read it word for word. Whereas normally I like to expand or illustrate or whatever. And uh, so I, I read the introduction and he, he said, hang on. And he was waiting and he said, that's fine, Bill, we'll go with that. So I said, what do you mean we? He said, all this going directly to Penguin in London, there's six people sat around a table who are checking for the veracity of the audio. And uh, so it was two days were hard work with my voice. But I felt, what I really felt was that 
I needed it to be authentic. I didn't want an actor reading it. Mm. I wanted it to be me, because it was it, it, that book is my life. So it, people say a lot of my old athletes say, "Bill, it's you talk. I, I, I can I can hear you." It's, so anyway, it's worked. Love so it. the audio is quite successful. I will. I'm going to download that as well. I'm not the. Yeah. Sometimes I can read a hard copy, but we'll. Well, um, yeah, like I say, linked all down below. Thank you so much for your time, honestly. It's so appreciated and um, really excited to share this with everyone. For me, this was an amazing conversation. Sports psychology and people like Bill are the people I used to look up to. When I was playing basketball, it was the Kobe Bryants of the world, the MJs, um, Tiger, you know, all these people had that elite mindset that I would follow. I would read their autobiographies. I'd read their books, whatever it was, I'd follow them. Because to be at that level, you have to have something special about you. And I, I love that. And that's why I love Bill. Bill's book's fantastic, by the way. If you want to check that out, um, you'll be able to find it by Googling Bill Bessick. And yeah, I've got a copy of his book and I really do love that book. Um, if you want to support us, you can head over to mulliganbrothers.com where you can buy the Memento Mori poster. A reminder that you will die. It is a poster that reminds you that you will die. Go check that out if you like the sound of it. It's loads of little squares that represent the weeks of your life. And at some point, you're not going to fill that poster in ever again. And that sounds morbid, but it is hugely motivational for me. And if it sounds like something that might motivate you, go do it. Uh, all the profits from the website, as always, go back into creating this content. And I cannot thank you guys enough for the support on Instagram, on YouTube, uh, everybody who's been messaging and DMing me, all the lovely people who have said hello on Instagram. Um, Anyone who sent us photos of you wearing the Inspire Change t-shirts and hoodies and stuff, it has been so cool to see. So thank you so much to everybody. There's thousands of journals out there. There's thousands of t-shirts out there now. And it, they all have Mulligan Rivers Inspire Change on there. And the mission is getting out there in different ways all the time. So thank you so much to everybody. I hope you have a blessed and productive day and I'll see you in the next one. Peace.